Well, we are starting in chapter 6 of Luke today, so grab your Bibles, head that way. <clears throat> the, the Lord of the Sabbath we'll be dealing with today. Uh, so we're going to be learning about the Sabbath today. We're going to see a little bit about uh, legalism, and we're going to learn about Jesus, who has said of himself, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the, the true hope and the rest that legalism can rob men, women, and children from. So um, let's, let's just jump right into our story this morning, and then we're going to backtrack a little bit to get some information we need to understand this. Uh, so Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, illuminate our minds this morning so that we might understand why this interaction between Jesus and these Pharisees was recorded in your word. Help us to understand the reasons that you have gifted us with the Sabbath. Help us to see how we may be living like these Pharisees. And then in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we are asking that you would change our ways to be more like your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when people think of the Ten Commandments in general, they, they tend to think of them as cold and restrictive. This, this set of rules is just, just to squash people down. That, that view of the, the Ten Commandments, though, fails to see the purpose of those commandments given within the context of redemption, redemptive history to begin with. Because remember, before those commandments were given to, to Israel, God had already lovingly claimed Israel as his people. He had set them free from, from slavery in Egypt just before that. And so these commandments then, they, they aren't a means for, for them to earn God's love. They, these commandments are, are a gift to God's people. They have good purposes. These ten indicatives reveal the character of, of God to us. And when we honor these commandments and, and we offer this complete reliance upon the Holy Spirit towards them, we, we honor the Lord who has... Uh, who has time and time again proven his love for his people, absolutely proven it. All of that culminating, right, in the, in the glorious sacrifice on that nasty Roman cross. So the fourth commandment, the, the one that comes into play today, 
uh, of those Ten Commandments is the Sabbath. God tells this to Moses. It's, it's recorded in Exodus 20 and, and verses 8 through 11. I'm going to read that to you. God says this. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And understand, this was first commanded to people who, who farmed, people who ranched, people who had endless work that they could do, needed to do, probably often felt like they should be doing. They had no concept of, uh, of the weekend like we do, no concept of recreation in the sense that we do. There just wasn't time for that. For them, the, the challenge of the Sabbath was, was trusting that they absolutely or actually could stop working for a day. And that the Lord would continue to sustain things in such a way that they could continue to survive. It was also the best day of the week for them. It was a time to stop from the work, to, to focus on worship to the Lord, to be refreshed in the way that God intended it. And so as we understand the Sabbath, it's good that we understand that Jesus never abolishes the Sabbath. He never teaches against it. And, and since Jesus was resurrected on a, a Sunday, you might uh, fall into this. Since he was resurrected on a Sunday, Christians from that day forward have kept the Sabbath on the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week. That's why we, we, we acknowledge it on, on Sunday instead of Saturday. Our story today, though, occurs on the Sabbath. It would have been a Saturday at the time. And as, as Jesus and his disciples go through this grain field, they find themselves hungry. And so they begin to pick some of the grain into their hands. And they begin to rub it in their hands so they can be able to eat it. The, uh, the Pharisees watching this are absolutely disgusted by this action. And so the Pharisees throw out that accusation, right? Asking that question, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Again, as they pick this grain in the field, right? They understand that's not sin to do so. Deuteronomy 23:25 says that's absolutely fine. As long as you're not harvesting someone else's food or grain and taking it off, it's absolutely fine to do. Their, their objection is that they're doing it on the Sabbath. They believe that Jesus is working and therefore violating the Sabbath. See, in the eyes of the Pharisees, they see this picking of the grain, right? That is harvesting in their eyes. And the idea of rubbing in their hands is they're making it so that they can actually break it apart and eat it. Therefore, they're preparing food on the Sabbath. So the, the problem then with this accusation is that it's based upon their own law, not the law of God. And that's a huge distinction there. They had created their own litany of rules about what it means to keep the Sabbath. Uh, a ton of things. There's 39 main things. And even those got broken down in the smaller groups. Uh, and, and basically what they're saying then is that to be a good Jewish person, you have to do all these things. And this is what it means to, to obey the, the Sabbath. What they created was legalism. They take what should be this delightful day of rest and they turn it into a heavy burden by adding to God's word and by, by treating this new standard as though it were the commands of God. And so then, can you imagine yourself, think about this, can you imagine comparing yourself to Jesus, the perfect Son of God, and being convinced in the end that, that you're righteous and He is not? 
That's what the Pharisees did in this moment. It's exactly what they've done. Now, Jesus could have responded to their accusation. I think most of us probably would have. No, you stop. That's just your ridiculous rule. Just stop, right? That, that could have been a fine thing, but he doesn't respond that way. Instead, he begins to tell them this story because he wants to help them and anyone observing this understand to, to see that the Sabbath law was intended to, to nourish God's people, not to burden them. And so he tells this story about King David. Uh, you know, it's a time when, when God had anointed him king of Israel, but, but the previous king, Saul, was still alive and didn't like this, this plan of God's, and so he's chasing David, hoping to kill him. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, David and his men are traveling, and they have left and so quickly. They have no food with them, nothing to use. And, and as they're going, they, they see the tabernacle. They stop by there. This is a place of worship. And they ask the priest in there for some bread. Only the only bread that's available is the bread of the presence, this, this holy bread that was baked a, a special way. and It was only to be eaten by the priest. Nobody else was permit, permitted to eat it. And yet the priest in this moment considers that David here is uniquely anointed by God to be the king of Israel. And he sees their, their great need for it, right? There's a, a necessity here. And so he gives it to David. And David takes the bread and hands it out to his men. And here they are eating this, this, this holy bread that was supposed to be set apart for just the priest. See, when, when, when David and his men, though, ate this bread, it's, it's because they had need of it. It wasn't out of some disrespect or some lack of honor regarding God. That's the situation there. But, but also, and the larger thing is that, that David had authority as the anointed king to do that. How much more does Jesus Christ as the, as the Messiah have authority to do so here? And yet, Jesus and his disciples, they never actually violated the law of God here. That's why Jesus says again, uh, using that title from Daniel 7, it's the second time we've seen it now, Jesus says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And with that statement, Jesus is rejecting the Pharisees' legalistic interpretation of the law. And, 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 and as he does so, he's telling them, listen, I, I'm God. The authority to interpret this law is, is mine because it is mine, not yours. I, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And then, and then we're told another story by Luke. Let me ask you, you, you ever been that person who is uh, so mad at someone that you begin to follow someone, maybe on social media? Gathering examples of, you know, terrible things they're posting. Or, or maybe you assume the worst about everything someone says. Just being nitpicky, uh, ungracious in your interpretation of what they do. Uh, just looking for them to do something wrong. You don't have to shake your head to that. I don't want to know if that's you. Can, can we all just agree, though, if that is us? We're not going to do that. Um, ever. Stop. Uh, here's why I mention it, though. I mention it because the, the Pharisees absolutely are that person. Right here's this, this Jesus going around, and all they know is this good stuff he's doing uh, for people. But they're going around, and, and they're and, and they're following him, right? Uh, they're listening to him teach, but they don't care about learning from him. They're 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 watching him as he moves about, but they don't care about anything he's doing except for the hope that maybe they're going to be able to bust him doing something wrong. That's the only thing they're looking for from Jesus. And so, in the the synagogue on this Sabbath day, the, the Pharisees noticed that. There's a man there with a, a withered hand. It's, it's deformed. It's unusable. Uh, the Pharisees may have even planted the guy there uh, as a test to see if Jesus would heal them. We, we don't know that, but some people believe that's the case here. Uh, which then, uh, as far as the healing goes, according to their man-made laws, Jesus would be working. 
Healing was a way of working. And especially since the man was not in any imminent danger, right? He wasn't going to die if Jesus didn't act in that moment. Therefore, they think it'd be a violation of the, of the law or a violation of the Sabbath. Again, what we're seeing here is they're being legalists. Jesus knows what they're up to. He, he can read their thoughts. He knows what's going on. But in, instead of just avoiding the trap like you think you might do, instead, he calls the man up to the very front. He's already in front of everyone teaching. He calls the man to the front to stand beside him so that everyone can see what's happening. At this point, you, you can imagine the Pharisees, right? Their, their evil hearts probably soared, like, we're, we're going to get him. He, he's going to heal this man. We're going to bust him. But then Jesus, while, while the man stands silent beside him, Jesus asks the Pharisees this question. Listen to this. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To, to save life or destroy it? Which is the good thing to do here? It's this absolutely soul-probing question, and they answer the way you'd expect them to answer. Just silence. They have no answer to this. So Jesus is pointing out in this moment their, their lack of compassion, that, that their absence of mercy was in fact what was truly, truly immoral in this situation. He flips the whole thing on them. It's like he's, he's holding up a big mirror reflecting their depraved hearts back at them. See, not only is it okay to do works of mercy on the Sabbath, but, but we should desire to do so. It's a good thing that he's done. So as the, the silence in that room began to settle into awkwardness, Jesus, Jesus proving he has authority over diseases, tells that, the man there with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And that's, that's an odd thing to say when you really think about it. Because he's commanding this man to do something he's incapable of doing. That's the whole point of the deformity. He can't stretch out his hand. He's incapable of it. But, but when Jesus commands him to do so, he does so, and his hand is restored. Here we, we, we see, well, one, that the man has faith in Jesus, and two, that Jesus makes him able to obey the command that was impossible just a moment before. It's a beautiful image of the way our salvation works. God enables us to do what we simply cannot do, to, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, right? It's what we saw last week called an effectual calling. Now, if you're like me, you, you tend to think in, in general, right? If, if people could see true miracles, like real miracles that were, were clear and obvious to everyone, that they would immediately just believe in Jesus, right? If you could take Jesus with you and he could just do miracles, people would absolutely believe it, believe in him. As though this were the, the, the irrefutable evidence of Jesus' divinity that we really needed uh, to, to, be, to be powerful in evangelism. And yet Jesus does this miracle here in front of everybody with a man that everyone already knew was, had the withered hand. They see the healing happen right in front of their eyes. And still these Pharisees solidly, solidly reject Jesus. Verse 11 says, They were filled with fury, and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. And that's not good things they're trying to come up with there. When you think about it, though, what did, what did Jesus even do in this moment? I mean, technically, he never even touched the man. Why in the world, then, are they so bent out of space or out of shape? Well, he exposed their lack of love and compassion 
for these people in need. And he did so right in front of all their peers. Right in front of all the people they wanted to think that they were, they were super holy. Their reputation, their, their pride has been threatened. And so they absolutely rage against the Messiah in this moment. The self-righteousness or their self-righteousness blinds them from, from seeing Jesus who is their only hope for true righteousness. And that ends the story actually before us. But I do want to take the rest of our time this morning to focus on two applications of these, this passage. And the first of them has to do with legalism. Uh, legalism exists in, in general in our culture. Don't think it's only a, a thing within the church. Uh, any unbiblical set of rules for that, that means you know, you're a good person in the society is some form of legalism. We, we see it today. You have to hold a, a certain view on sexual ethics or, property, or, or properly expressed uh, moral outrage on social media about whatever the current issue is. Maybe holding um, certain envi- environmental stances, right? You have to properly boycott straws at this point. You have to ask that question, you know, was this kale locally sourced? You've got to know that stuff. Uh, legalism exists everywhere, but, but, but it, we're really mostly concerned with it in the church. We're really mostly concerned with, with where, it, where it's coming into our lives as Christians. I think the first thing we've got to admit, though, is that the, the church, Christians, today and historically, we are prone to legalism. Some of you grew up in an environment where, where watching a movie or listening to rock music was, was absolutely forbidden. The worst thing you could do. Um, you were told, you know, real Christians couldn't, uh, didn't dance or didn't touch alcohol. But, but that was 30 years ago, right? And I got to thinking, so, so what are the legalisms that we, we struggle in the church with today? And, and so I actually asked a group of fellow PCA pastors about, you know, what are some modern day legalisms we run into? Uh, One of them said this, he said, legalism is holding to a very specific way to raise children, including educational choices, as a litmus test for being truly a Christian. Right? Not that it's not an important thing to do, but but your choice now determines whether I believe you're a true Christian. Uh, Another one said that we're legalistic about politics, as in, you must share my political perspective or you don't understand the gospel. One saw it as being put together. This idea that you just have to be put together. And he added this. He said, there's, there's no room in our church for true brokenness or suffering. We all feel we have to be put together. Another one said, specifically in, in Reformed circles, which is kind of ironic because it flips what the uh, legalism 30 years ago would have been. It said that you have to drink. Right? Shame on you for not drinking. You can't be a real Christian if you won't. Um, A brother from College Station, it's a town not unlike this one, uh, he said this one. I was hoping Garrett was going to be here to explain this camo stuff to me. But anyway, he said this. I used to think that everyone who wore real tree camo was stupid and that you should only wear mossy oak camo because everyone knows it's superior. And then he said, I've since repented. Real tree has a great bird hunting camo and Carhartt crosses the cultural divide pretty well. I don't know what that means. Some of you might. Legalist and with camo. Now you all know we can become legalists real quick when it, becomes, when it comes to clothing. You've heard it, I think, because I've heard it, right? Yeah. Godly women don't wear leggings as pants. I'm not the only one who's heard that phrase, right? 
Uh, we, we can get pretty self-righteous when we demand that people, you, what, you know, what language, what vocabulary they use or do not use when they're explaining their, their experience with God, their, their salvation experience, right? How, how quickly do we reform folks get up uh, uptight when someone says, you know, I, I chose to follow God at this, you want to interrupt them, right? Well, really, God chose you. Is this the time to do that? Worship style. That is a petri dish for growing into legalists. We could easily insist that one specific liturgy is the only right way to do it or that all true churches must have weekly communion or a Sunday evening service. I, uh, I remember we were at a, a great church, really was, and they did have a Sunday evening, evening worship service. And I remember on this day, this specific day, every single year was, was this day, Super Bowl Sunday. Right? It was a great opportunity for legalism because this was the night that even those who rarely came to evening service would make sure they showed up. And, and here's why. Be, because they feared if they weren't there that other people might think they're at home watching the Super Bowl. So no matter what, they're going to be at church. I mean, that's, that's a modern day legalism. So, so listen though, these things aren't, aren't bad things, Right? Legalism is rarely just bad things, right? An evening worship service can be a great blessing to the people of God. And we should be mindful of the, the types of clothing we wear, the, the songs we, that we sing, or, or how we sing them, right? It should be thought out in regards to how God prescribes His worship to be. But, but sometimes even good things in our corrupted hearts turns into a, a sense of legalism. Think, think about this, though. At one point, right, we're, we're talking about our, uh, the Pharisees in this story, right? At one point, though, it's very likely that the Pharisees actually desired that God be honored on the Sabbath. That was their goal. That was their intention. But at the point of our passage today, it had absolutely corroded into a self-righteous legalism. So I want to give you five ways we can begin to self-identify our legalistic tendencies. First, legalism has you when you care more about people seeing and people thinking that you do godly things. than you actually care about loving God and actually care about loving your neighbor. Number two, we become legalists when we add to God's word. Simply put. For instance, a good way to not get drunk, which is indeed sin... Because God's word says so. But a good way to not get drunk is to not drink anything at all. You could choose to do that. You have the freedom to do that. But since God's word doesn't forbid it, for you to say that it is a sin or, or to say that no genuine Christian should consume any alcohol becomes legalism. Third, we, we become legalists when we trust in our own good works and rule falling instead of the grace of God and the gospel. And it's a shame when this happens for a couple of reasons. One, for your own ability to just rest in the grace of God. But, but also because other people who are watching you, who are looking on to you, they, they never see how amazing the grace of God is. Do not trust in your good deeds. Trust in your good and gracious Savior. Fourth, if you find yourself constantly hiding your sin rather than confessing and repenting of it, you, you may be functioning in your heart like a legalist. Because you're more concerned about what it looks like than you are your own sanctification, your own satisfaction in the Lord. Five, uh, last one, legalism leads people to not care about others, to lack compassion, right? The, the Pharisees cared nothing about this man in his withered hand. All they could see was maybe Jesus was going to work on this day and we're going to bust him. The Lord has given us in his word a proper way to live and so we should. 
But beware, beware you're not seeking to obey these unbiblical rules that prevent you from obeying God's call to love him and God's call to love your neighbor. So that's the legalist part. I I also want to, you know, last thing we're going to do here in light of this passage is I, I want to encourage us towards a restful Sabbath obedience. Right? We, we live in this world today that is just go, go, go all the time. You feel it. I'm sure you do. You ask people what's going on in their life. Well, just we're busy. We're busy. We're busy. And that's a, a universal thing almost, right? I, I recently read a, a New York Times article about this, the, the business culture of, of working all the time. Like this is what you need to be doing as an employee. Uh, and one employee even said that their, their company carved into the cucumbers in the water cooler, right? They carved the cucumbers that are pushed up against the front of this water cooler. I saw a picture of it. And it said this, don't stop when you're tired. Stop when you're done. It's this motivation of go, 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 keep working. The the article later stated this. It said, for congregants of the cathedral of perpetual hustle, spending time on anything that's non-work related has become a reason to feel guilty. That's not how God has designed us to live. God has given us the Sabbath not as a heavy burden, but as a good gift whereby we may rest from labor. So that our bodies and our minds can be restored and renewed. In Mark 2.27, Jesus makes these good purposes of the Sabbath quite clear when he says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's for you. Peter Scazzaro put it this way. He said, we should view the Sabbath as God giving his people a snow day once a week. A day off. It's a gift from God to us, but it's a gift that, if we're honest, most of us have just rejected. You know, here's this gift. No, I got this. Not interested. It it would do us good to begin to embrace this good good gift of God more fully. So in short, the the Sabbath is the absence of work and, and the presence of rest. Imagine it as a non-hectic day. And I know some of you are already thinking, if that's what it is, then I've already failed just trying to get here on time today. (laughs) So maybe it's a non-hectic day later. Um, And I don't want to get legalistic here. Anytime you're talking about the Sabbath, it is so tempting to go into some sort of legalism. But I, I do want to give you a few ideas on how you might get the rest that it's intended to give you. And so the Sabbath becomes a, a day of rest when we, when we cease from whatever it is that you consider work in, in your life. Right? So, so don't, don't think of this as you begin to process through this. Don't, don't create this list of things you can't do, but, but rather create a list of things that you won't do for the sake of truly resting. You catching that distinction between won't do and, and can't do? Michael Horton wrote of the Sabbath. He said this, It's a day of rest, not only for our bodies and minds, but also for our souls as we rest in Christ and cease from relying on our own activity. The emphasis is not not what we can't do on the Lord's day, but what ordinary callings we are freed from to enjoy a foretaste of the everlasting Sabbath. So when you're thinking about those things that you consider work, right? You, you make your own list, but it might, consider, it might include things like this, uh, responding to emails, 
preparing documents, houseworks, paying bills, running errands, mowing the lawn, doing homework, remodeling the kitchen, uh, harvesting alfalfa, uh, whatever it is you work at the other six days of the week. As far as you are able, take a break from it. Take a break from it. Because this is the Lord's gift to you. Now, the Sabbath is not just this list of things that you don't do, right? It's not just that. It's actively seeking the Lord in worship. It includes what you're doing right now, the corporate worship. It also might include a thoughtful time of prayer or reading a book on the couch with a nice cup of coffee in your hand. It might include having friends over for lunch or an unrushed stroll through the Kanza. You see, to get the most, though, out of the Sabbath, it's going to take a little bit of planning in your life. It it makes Saturday a day of preparation in some regard. If you get your homework done then, if you get some of the work you need to get done, if if you prep your meals in ways that's going to make Sunday evening or, or Sunday easier. It also means that we don't borrow tomorrow's work, meaning, you know, let your mind rest on Sunday. Let the worries of Monday stay on Monday. You'll have time to worry about it then. Again, I'm not suggesting you legalistically forbid watching sports or television. Or, or, you know, but binging on Netflix, it's most likely going to leave you soul weary instead of rested come morning, Monday morning. Parents of small children, I know you hear this and it thinks, well, you don't understand. Um, you're right, I've gotten to a point, it's a little easier. But I, I know that figuring out how to honor, honor the Sabbath can be particularly difficult with small children. I encourage you, don't, don't make that as an excuse not to try, not to figure out some way. And, and remember, that's just a, a season of life that you're in. You, you, you won't, they won't be little for, forever, but now's the time to start modeling for them what, what honoring the Sabbath looks like, you know, to have that, that good practice. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards once said this, he, he said, Parents who love the Savior should love this day, and they should strive to ensure it is a day to be looked forward to by the children. So there's some aspects as we wrestle through what it means to honor the Sabbath. You don't want to make this miserable for your family. Um... You know, think of ways to, to set it apart. I'll say uh, one way we found that it, to, to do so, to set it apart, is that uh, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, our, our children are allowed to eat anything they want for breakfast. Right? Anything. Provided they don't make themselves sick. This was the later added stipulation. <laughs> or complain during church about how hungry they are. We learned that pretty quick. Um, but other than that, they can have ice cream and cereal for breakfast. They can have whatever they want for breakfast. It's just a way of setting it apart. Because this day is, is the Lord's day, it's different from all others. Um, so here's what I'd, I'd love for us to do. For all of us to just start praying, start discussing with each other, how we might, might move towards a restful Sabbath obedience that honors the good gift of the Lord and his, you know, for his people. As you consider these things, you, you, know, you wish to cease from and the things that you wish to actively include, I, I, you know, be asking of this over and over again. Will this promote the purpose of this day? Will this really provide rest and refreshment in the Lord? So you're asking questions, right? Should we, should we play a game of, of cards, kings on the corner, whatever it might be, right? You're asking that question, does this promote rest and refreshment in the Lord? Should, should we work on that project that we've fallen behind on, that we need to do? Should we ride our bikes to the library? Should, you know, should I binge week eight seasons of Psych? 
See you shaking your head yes. Um, should we pray together? Should we take a nap? Should we go to the pool or have someone over for lunch? Always asking ourselves this question, right? This is the one I want you to get. Would this promote rest and refreshment in the Lord? Would this promote rest and refreshment in the Lord? Let's pray. Gracious God, help each and every one of us to confess in our hearts that we are not God. We need sleep every day. We, we need rest for our souls every week. Make us to also know that we are not the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is. And so teach us how in, in 2019 to, to set this day apart in a way that, that honors you and refreshes our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.